Well, our our passage for reflection this morning is out of Acts chapter 2, and it is filled with all sorts of good stuff. It is the church's birthday, you have dancing fire, confusion, speaking in tongues, and accusations of drunkenness. There's just a lot of good stuff in there this morning, and so let's turn to the Word of God. Acts chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Luke writes these words in Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. As the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? You're speaking this morning. Our longing is to hear from you, God. And we need the grace that comes from you and the power that comes from the Holy Spirit to have that capacity to listen to your voice. Would you grant us that grace as we earnestly seek your will this day? Amen and amen. Today is the day in which we might casually describe as the church's birthday, the day in which the church receives its life for the first time. And one of the things that we kind of see in our passage this morning is there's a strong echo of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation stories throughout this creation story of the church. You see, in the creation stories, the word describing God's presence is the Hebrew word ruach. You can say ruach. Turn to your person next to you in your living room and say ruach. It can be translated as wind or spirit or breath. In the Greek translation of the Bible known as the Septuagint, ruach is translated as pneuma. Say to whoever you're with, pneuma, pneuma. Or you could just say pneuma because the P-N sound is very odd. But Genesis 1-2 in the Septuagint or that Greek translation reads this way. It says, the pneuma of God swept over the face of the earth. That is the wind of God, the spirit of God, the breath of God swept over the face of the earth. And later in Genesis 2, and God fashions mankind out of the dust of the ground. God forms his lifeless body before him out of the earth. And as Adam lies lifeless before God, Genesis says that God breathed his pneuma, his 
breath, his spirit, his wind into Adam's nostrils. God fills Adam's lungs with his pneuma. That is, God's breath is breathed into and gives life to humankind in Genesis 2. And it's from God's breath, from his spirit, that we live and move and have our being. This is the story that Genesis tells us. And the description here in Acts 2 of a violent pneuma or violent wind, a violent breath, a violent spirit is an indication that the same God who hovered over the depths of the earth now hovers over the gathered disciples of Jesus. The same spirit, the same pneuma that filled Adam's nostrils and lungs is the spirit, according to verse four, that fills the community of disciples that have gathered together in prayer. That is, God has brought something new into being. He has given new life, something that will live and move and have its being by the very breath, by the very spirit, by the very wind of God. Pentecost marks that day when the Holy Spirit descends into the lives of Jesus' disciples, making them into a new kind of community, a new kind of people. Pentecost, in other words, is the church's birthday, the day we receive life from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We were gathering together on our campus this morning. I had thought in my mind that I wanted to have a big birthday cake for us. It might have been a little bit too far, a little bit too hokey. Maybe instead of bulletins, we would have distributed birthday hats. But this is the day that we celebrate the Holy Spirit gives life to the church. And we would do well this morning to note that in verse 4, the Holy Spirit is said to fill all of them. The them referred to in this passage or in that verse are the 12 disciples, which included the new guy, Matthias, who took Judas's spot. Lucky Matthias got to hop onto the gravy train right at the end there. But Jesus's family is included here, his mother and his brothers, and a number of other women that we see in Acts chapter 1. Though some of the individuals gathered at Pentecost were listed as individuals in Acts chapter 1. They were listed by name. The Holy Spirit's activity comes upon a people. It comes upon the community of disciples. There are no individuals listed here that the, the Holy Spirit gathers in. See, we learn that this community of people is devoted to corporate prayer together and to the teaching of the apostles and this reminds us of the great loss that we experience while being unable to safely gather together. Is that the church from its very inception is the physical communal gathering of Jesus' disciples in prayer and under the teaching of the apostles. A network of relationships pulled together under the lordship of Jesus and filled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You see, God's blessing and empowerment of his church were corporate rather than private, collective rather than personal, communal rather than individual. The individualized, privatized emphasis on faith that we find so prevalent in our churches today miss the theological implications and emphasis of the birth of the church. This has always been about a people, not just a person. This is about a community of disciples, not singular individuals. The popular image given to us in the New Testament is to think of the church as a body. Some of us are the eyes. 
Some of us are the hands. Some of us are the nose. No single part alone is the whole body, and the whole body necessarily needs each part to do its part. In Ephesians, Paul, in fact, says that we need each part to do its work in order for the whole body to grow and build itself up in love. That is to say that by necessarily being corporate, collective, and communal, the church is also diverse. Many different kinds of parts in one singular body. The diversity that is unified in the church by the Holy Spirit isn't just a diversity of spiritual gifts like we often think about. It is a diversity of different kinds of people, different kinds of cultures, different kinds of socioeconomic statuses, different kinds of races, different kinds of languages. I heard a great joke a while back that goes this way. What do you call someone who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. <laughs> there is a little bit of laughter in here for those of you who couldn't hear it, but one of the things that I think that I, as an American, missed for years with this passage is why the Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to speak one language that is heard in all of the languages of the crowd that was gathered around them that day. You see, most of my life, I just thought it was a way of expediting the sharing of the gospel. The disciples, so I thought for years and years and years, spoke whatever language that they spoke, which would have been different from all the other languages that all the other people spoke in that gathering. I mean, you have at least 16 different nations that are listed here, so maybe you have up to 16 other languages represented in this passage this morning. And so this sort of looks like a United Nations gathering, right? So I just assume that without the infrastructure of translations, that the Holy Spirit just kind of does the work and has to perform this miracle. But when you dig into the cultural norms of this part of the world in the first century, you quickly realize that they did not approach language like this stereotypical American, i.e. me. They didn't speak just one language. They spoke lots and lots of languages. Historians believe that first century Jews in Judea spoke Aramaic as their common language. This would have been Jesus's primary language. That is a language that he probably taught in and spoke at home and spoke out in the public spaces. But being Jewish... He also probably spoke Hebrew. Um, the, and having grown up in a, a part of the world that was influenced by Greek culture, by this guy that we all may have heard of called Alexander the Great, who conquered much of the known world and spread Greek culture across his massive empire. And one of the things that he did was he sort of coerced and forced everybody to learn and speak Greek. And so Jesus likely, and first century Jews in the world that he lived in likely, spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. In fact, the vast majority of New, the New Testament was written in Greek. It might have even been possible for first century Jews to have known a little bit of Latin since they grew up in the Roman Empire, were ruled by the Roman Empire. And so what you have in this scene in Acts chapter 2 is a gr group of devout Jews their devotion highlighted by the fact that they've converged on Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, or in Hebrew, Shavuot. Their devotion making it likely that they spoke Hebrew in addition to whatever native language that they spoke, Aramaic or something different. And if historians are correct, and likely they are, 
is that they all spoke Greek because of its prevalence in the world in that day. It had a utility that you needed to use that language when you traveled to different parts of the known world. And likely, many of them would have spoken at least a little bit of Latin since they were ruled and conquered by the Roman Empire. So the question is this, why does the Holy Spirit manifest through the various manifests himself through the various languages of those present in the crowd. There's no need for any sort of miracle here. A miracle is only necessary if you're wanting to see or experience that is impossible. But if the disciples just spoke in Greek, or if they just spoke in Hebrew, or if they just spoke in Latin, the whole crowd would understand them. There is no need for a miracle. There's no need for this sort of manifestation of the Holy Spirit in this way. So why does the Holy Spirit communicate through the native languages of the crowd? There's this other story in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, commonly referred to as the Tower of Babel. We need a sort of cursory understanding of that story to understand what's actually going on here in Acts chapter 2. What happens in this Tower of Babel story is that mankind is united, but its unity is a sort of uniformity. That is, they all speak the same language. They all have the same culture. And it's in their uniformity, and it's in their pride that they decide that they're going to build this giant tower. The tower is a permanent structure that is erected to represent their defiance to God and unwillingness to obey him. So God comes down and confuses their language. That is, he begins to make them speak in various languages. Imagine undertaking a massive building project, and you ask your colleague for a hammer, and they hand you a level. This becomes an impossibility. And so their project fails, and they spread out across the world. And what we discover in that story is that their uniformity and pride result in the dividing of the nations. And as the British biblical scholar F.F. Bruce writes, the event of Pentecost was nothing less than a reversal of the curse of Babel. Where the unity and pride of Babel divided the nations, the gift of the Holy Spirit brought the nations back together, not by making them uniform, but by uniting them in Christ. The church, the body of Christ formed at Pentecost does not eliminate cultural or ethnic differences and diversities, but finds glory in unifying them. This is why the Holy Spirit manifests himself in this way at Pentecost, as an affirmation, as a way of saying your differences can be united under the lordship of Jesus. It isn't to solve an otherwise impossible translation issue, but to highlight the unifying of a diverse people into the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This makes a church, the church, a foretaste of that glorious day when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess, every language confess, every culture confess, every race confess that he is Lord. A foretaste of how, even amidst our differences and diversity, we can be unified in Christ Jesus. But this kind of community is really hard. It's really hard. The events that have swept across our nation this past week are demonstrations of how hard it is, even when it's governed by the Holy Spirit in the church. 
it's really hard. You see, our differences, racial, ethnic, cultural, frequently lead to divisions among us. Several years ago, I was coaching a high school boys soccer team. And one particular day, I was running a little bit late to training. I usually try to get to these training sessions early so I could set everything up and we can move through our, our practice with efficiency, kind of lay out all the cones, balls, pennies, et cetera, et cetera. And this particular day, I wasn't able to do that. So I asked my boys to break up into three groups while I got the field prepared for training that day. After I was done setting everything up, I turned and, and noticed that they had indeed broken up into three groups, and they were chatting, talking, and doing the drill that I asked them to do, doing the things that teams do. And I noticed something awfully strange. Two of the three groups were made up of all my Latino kids. And one group was made up of all the white kids and the one Asian kid who is on the team. This is the curse of Babel a division amongst us along racial and ethnic and linguistic lines. But this isn't just a public school or worldly issue out there. This is a church issue. When I was in high school, me and my best friend were the only two non-white kids on the soccer team, high school soccer team that we played on. This, by the way, was a Christian, Christian high school. For some reason, me and my best friend were the only people to earn ourselves racial, racially referential nicknames. I, for my brown skin, was called Beaner, a derogatory epithet for Mexican people. Note, I'm not Mexican. My best friend, for his Asian heritage, he's from Taiwan, was referred to as Wang. This went on for years. Our teammates, all white, thought that it was hilarious. This is the curse of Babel. I remember when I was in college, sitting in the passenger of a car with one of my friends who happened to be white, and he drove through a stop sign and got pulled over. And of course, he pulls over, the cops approach the vehicle, and there was one person who was pulled out of that car and searched and questioned and interrogated about what was going on that night. And it wasn't my white friend who was driving the car and broke the law. It was me sitting in the passenger seat. This is the curse of Babel. Well, two years ago, just a couple of years ago, I went to drop off Levi at his childcare situation. It was a friend of ours in our church up there. Um, predominantly, I think, white neighborhood. And as I was getting out of the car to get Levi, one of her neighbors happened to be outside <clears throat> and approached me and asked me, I was dressed like this, asked me how much I charged for my lawn services. And I was sort of flabbergasted at the question. I was in my little box car. There's no lawn equipment. There's no truck. I'm not in work clothes, but how much do I charge for my lawn services? There's no way that I could have been in that neighborhood because somebody, somebody in that neighborhood was providing a service to me, but this is the curse of Babel. You see, it's easy for our diversity, particularly our racial and ethnic differences, to be a source of division, not just in the world, but in the church. And it's reversed on Pentecost in the church. I, like many of you, have been thinking long and hard about how to best respond in these days. My heart has been lamenting in prayer. A place for all of us to start. If you don't know where to start, that's where you start. And the impulse for so many is to speak out, and rightfully so. 
As I read a lot on social media and digital Christian publications this week, I was reminded that the miracle of unity at Pentecost happens as a result of hearing, not from speaking. Those standing in the crowd that day by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit are able to hear what God is trying to say through the disciples. And their response ought to be our response in these days. What does all of this mean? What does all of this mean? And it's only in hearing and seeking to understand that the miracle of unity amidst our diversity is possible. My encouragement to our church in these days is to hear and to seek to understand what's being said about racial issues in this country and in the church. Some of what you hear may sound like a different language. It may sound like a different world. These are concepts and and stories and ideas and experiences that we've never maybe experienced before in our life. But perhaps by the grace of God, perhaps by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we might understand what's being said by the church. Specifically, I would direct our church to a few voices. James Cone is a prominent African-American theologian, probably one of the most, if not the most, prominent American theologian of all time, who writes a lot about race and faith and religion. Of course, Martin Luther King Jr. is another pastor and prophetic African-American voice to read. And not just listening to a few speeches or pulling a few quotes, but actually reading the things that he wrote. I just ordered, Where Do We Go From Here? by MLK Jr. Look forward to that, reading that today. Christianity Today has a number of tremendous articles of African American and minority pastors and leaders and theological thinkers to help us begin to think about these issues that we're wrestling and grappling with today. I'd specifically highlight a series titled, It's Time to Listen, from last August on Christianity Today's website that was really meaningful to me. We have to be a people who listen. Our own denomination, in fact, commissions its local churches to do such listening and understanding as a means of preparing us for acts of justice in the world. These are words written from our denominational manual. They read this way. We urge our churches everywhere to continue and strengthen programs of education, to promote racial understanding and harmony. We also feel that the scriptural admonition of Hebrews 12, 14 should guide the actions of our people. We urge that each member of the Church of the Nazarene humbly examine his or her personal attitudes and actions toward others as a first step in achieving the Christian goal of full participation by all in the life of the church and the entire community. Therefore, we renounce any form of racial and ethnic indifference, exclusion, subjugation, or oppression as a grave sin against God and our fellow human beings. We lament the legacy of every form of racism throughout the world, and we seek to confront that legacy through repentance, reconciliation, and biblical justice. We seek to repent of every behavior in which we have been overtly or covertly complicit with the sin of racism, both past and present. And in confession and lament, we seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Further, 
we acknowledge that there is no reconciliation apart from human struggle to stand against and to overcome all personal, institutional, and structural prejudice responsible for racial and ethnic humiliation and oppression. We call upon Nazarenes everywhere to identify and seek to remove acts and structures of prejudice to facilitate occasions for seeking forgiveness and reconciliation and to take action toward empowering those who have been marginalized. So a manual of the Church of the Nazarene, paragraph 915. It's the invitation and the call to the church on Pentecost Sunday is to be a people who are mindful of those institutions and actions and thoughts and inner attitudes that tend to separate the church rather than unify it in Christ. May we as a church reveal ourselves as a church of the Nazarene in these days. At the end of the passage this morning, some of the onlookers of Pentecost accuse the Christians, <laughs> accuse that gathered community of disciples of being filled with, quote, new wine. It's an accusation of drunkenness. Those people are crazy. Sort of a way to dismiss them and what's going on in that community of people. Their response stands in stark contrast to those who respond with a longing to hear and understand what does this mean. One is open and affirming and one is dismissive. Ironically, new wine, see Luke 5, is the metaphor Jesus gives to the new creation, the new activity of God in our midst and in the world. These people are dismissing it and these people are trying to seek to understand it. Who will we identify with as a church in 2020? Will we be a church asking, what does this mean? How do I understand this? Or will we be a church that dismisses the activity of God on issues of race and reconciliation? May we be granted the grace we need to hear and understand and in so doing discover a church, a body unified amidst its diversity and working for racial justice in our community. Let's pray. God, our longing is to be the church, to be the church that you have created and called us to be. And it's really hard. The events of our nation this week have revealed how hard it really is and how complicated it all is. Would you give us the grace that we need, God, to hear and understand the challenges, your activity, how your gospel might reform and reshape the church in these days. You are our Lord. May you draw us all together under your Lordship. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.